8.47. Let's get into our science and technology roundup with Mark Zastro, science journalist. Good morning. Good morning, Alex. There's been a lot in the last few days about water on Mars. I'm looking forward to having you clear that up for us. Should we be as excited as all that? Uh, Also, the EU toughening regulations on gene-edited plants and data scientists modelling the spread of religion and raising ethical questions. All sounds rather interesting today, as ever. Good morning. Again. Um, So, Mars. Water. Mm -hmm. So important to (laughs) even just speculating on the presence of life on the red planet. But there's always this hope and it's kind of dangled in front of scientists or dangled by Mm. scientists in front of the general population. Sure. But is it a moving target? Can we actually establish this pretty soon? Yeah, you're right. That it's uh, there's been a long series of announcements of water on Mars. It seems we we get one almost every year. Um, you, you may remember uh, just a few years ago we heard about uh, the possibility of small flows of liquid water sort of oozing out onto the surface. And you might remember that water was really more like it was briny, salty mud flows that would just kind of trickle down the surface of Mars and they would appear, uh, it was seasonal, so they would appear when it was warm in the spring or summer. So not really a true body of water, uh, but this new discovery is, and that's what's really interesting. This is an actual underground lake, about 20 kilometers long. Wow. How did they actually make the discovery? Like, why now? We, we, we knew quite a lot about the surface before this. Right. And, you know, actually in the past we've heard about, um, you know, underground frozen uh, bodies of water on Mars, right? Ice underneath the surface. And we, of course, know that there are, there's ice up in the polar caps, uh, but not liquid water. Uh, so this discovery actually came from an orbiting European satellite called Mars Express. And it was using its radar instruments to observe the surface and below the surface. And it's actually kind of funny. The scientists had been seeing a bright spot at this point, kind of near the southern pole of Mars, uh, for several years. And it seemed like there was something below the surface that was very reflective, but it was an inconsistent signal. It would, it would show up in some observations and then not in others. Uh, so finally, in 2012, the scientists told the satellite, OK, send us back the raw data. Because typically what happens with spacecraft that are, you know, in deep space, the data connection is really slow. So it does most of the basic image processing on the spacecraft first just to make the, the files smaller and, and quicker to send back. But in this case, they said, OK, give us the raw data. And, you know, it's like on your camera, you have the option to shoot in JPEG or raw formats. And, uh, you know, you can always get much more information in post-processing out of a raw image than you can from the compressed image. So once they actually took the time to download the raw data, uh, this lake showed up right away in the data. Could there be life swimming around, floating around, frozen somewhere? Microbial life, maybe. Yeah. I mean, obviously, we don't know if there is. But the short answer is yes, there absolutely could be. And that's why this is so exciting. This kind of underground lake. That's exactly the kind of habitat that scientists are searching for as sort of prime targets, you know, in looking for alien life or life within our solar system. Uh, We already know that there are some icy moons in the outer solar system, like around uh, Jupiter and Saturn, uh, where these moons have these underground lakes or even oceans. And there are a lot of scientists, uh, even some enthusiastic politicians, who would like to send basically a space drill to one of these moons to actually drill down beneath the surface uh, into that ocean and maybe look for life. Uh, But 
that would be really expensive for one because these planets are so far away, and also you know if you think about the history of these moons. Uh, geologically, they've never been able to support life on the surface of the moon. It's you're basically hoping that maybe life formed, you know, at the bottom of these oceans near some hydrothermal vents or something. But suddenly, now we have Mars, which we already know how to land rovers on, uh, and we also know that Mars actually was capable of supporting life on its surface uh, at one point in its past. It was an incredibly lush environment. It had rivers and oceans, a breathable atmosphere. So, you know, could there be life maybe th- that formed on the surface and is still locked away in these underground lakes? That is actually a possibility here. We can now turn to controversy over genetic engineering in plants on life that we definitely know exists. But uh, is this life... Not so much as we know it. Uh, It's been a blow to gene editing scientists, the European Union tightening its regulation of plants edited by CRISPR. That's right. In a decision last week, this was the Court of Justice of the European Union ruling that plants whose genomes are edited with CRISPR and other uh, new gene editing technologies, they're now going to be subject to the same tough laws as genetically modified organisms, or GMOs. Now, of course, the, U- the EU already has some of the world's strictest regulations on GMO crops, but a lot of scientists had been hoping that these new gene editing technologies, like CRISPR, would be treated differently from GMOs. And that's because these new methods are much more precise than the older methods for genetic modification. So you don't have to replace as large an amount of genetic material. In principle, you can make more targeted and more predictable changes, uh, far more so even than you know conventional non-GMO methods. Another argument in favor of gene editing uh, is that you don't actually have to introduce foreign genetic material into the plant that you're editing. A lot of CRISPR crops, they're not replacing genetic material with DNA from another plant or even an animal, as the case may be. Uh, Maybe you're just going in and turning off an existing gene. But the uh, EU court rejected those arguments, and that is a big blow to food companies in Europe who say that they're probably going to shift their research elsewhere. Uh, although, you know, this decision could actually impact how other countries, including Korea, uh, chooses to regulate these gene-edited plants. Well, we said before, we certainly hope they keep fine-tuning CRISPR so that it can come to the rescue on all sorts of fronts. That's right. Let's turn also to the topic of religion. Can science tell us anything about how religious movements spread? Data scientists have turned their attention to the topic. It is raising some tricky ethical questions, though. That's right. Uh, A group of scientists in the U.S. and Norway have spent the past few years on something called the Modeling Religion Project. And so they're using computer models to actually simulate the spread of religion through society, asking, you know, what drives these movements? What impacts do they have on society? And can you come up with any theories uh, about how religious movements spread that might actually be useful? And as The Atlantic magazine reported last week, this has actually resulted in a lot of spinoff projects that are trying to tackle specific policy issues. For instance, the government of Norway is funding a project to try to predict how Muslim refugees might integrate into Norway's society, which is highly secular. So, for instance, uh, how many refugees might you introduce into a city before you risk unrest and violence against them? Uh, You know, that's the kind of policies that governments are actually hoping these models can inform. So people could be treated according to their religion in a certain way based on a computer model, not just based on the discrimination Mm -hmm. we already see. 
That's right. Yeah, it's uh, it's a really tricky area here. Uh, it's another example where AI or, or data science is becoming integrated more into policy and raising these types of questions. Uh, there's another project uh, that has spun off from this uh, group that's focused on actually violent religious extremist movements and what kinds of religious figures are most effective at, at being a leader and propagating their movements. And so, you know, one effect of producing a model like that is that it basically tells you here are the most dangerous types of religious figures. Uh, now, this was not the researcher's intentions, but it basically, in, a, in effect, creates a criteria for governments about when they should assassinate religious leaders. Uh, and, you know, the model's own inventors are, are kind of sounding the alarm on this, saying, we didn't intend for this, but it's very possible that the U.S. military could be using this model to, say, inform their drone strikes. Um, it's a really, really uh, tricky area, and uh, certainly there needs to be a lot more discussion about uh, about these kinds of models. And that's why the researchers are actually coming forward and saying we need to have these discussions. Thank you, Mark. It's a pleasure to have you here and uh, always interesting to get a tour through some eclectic subjects in the world of science and technology. Thank you, Alex.